Digital Gonzo, episode 134, recorded on Sunday the 2nd of June 2013, Superman Returns. Mr. Luther, we're approaching the coordinates. This is where he learned who he was. This is where he came for guidance. Tell me everything. start with the big question. Where did you go? Your father used to say that you were put here for a reason. You know, the world can always use more good reporters. I want to know it all. Everything. Olsen. I want to see photos of him everywhere. Clark, hey, welcome back. So you've met the munchkin. Hello. Fearless reporter Lois Lane is a mommy. But if you ask me, she's still in love with you-know-who. Does he still stand for truth, justice, all that stuff? Superman returns. How could you leave us like that? It's not easy for me to live my life being who I am, keeping secrets. The world doesn't need a savior, and neither do I. So long, Superman. Lex Luthor. You're bald. Cute kid. Come with me. You're not going to want to miss this. What's wrong? Lois and Jason are missing. I have advanced alien technology. But millions of people will die. Billions! Come on, let me hear you say it just once. You're insane. No! <laughs> no, the other thing. Superman will run! Bring it on! What do you got, Olsen? Look, in the sky, Chief. It's a bird. It's a plane. No, look, it's... You wanted to see me? This week, rather than a straight round table, I have a collection of focused essays talking about the 2006 film Superman Returns and the Kryptonian hero archetype in general. I've held off mentioning John Williams' planet Krypton theme up until now, principally because it was used to staggering effect in the teaser trailer for this film. Take a listen and remember the anticipation you felt back then. As a human being, you are not one of them. reason above all 
their capacity for good. I have sent them you, my only son. It's a rare and unusual film we're looking at here, a replacement sequel for the disappointing third and fourth instalments of a series that ended 19 years prior. Again, not with a bang, but with an incredulous splutter. It would be like someone making a sequel to Aliens in 2016, because let's face it, nobody was happy with Alien 3 and Resurrection, so why not just pretend they didn't happen? It's also like this Alien Returns film would have to feature a sequence with Lance Henriksen in it, recorded two decades previously after hypothetical money issues meant that he couldn't be in Alien 3 or indeed Alien vs. Predator, despite shooting his footage. It's a joyful link to the past to hear and see Marlon Brando's Jurel once again convincing our brain we're watching a better film than we actually are. Kind of a shame he only communicates with Kevin Spacey's Luthor, actually. Also, Superman needs to think about having a lock put on that place. This is the second time Lex has just waltzed in and made himself at home. In Grant Morrison's All-Star, he carved a front door key out of the heart of a dwarf star, meaning it weighs half a million tons, and thus is only accessible to Superman himself. Or another Kryptonian. Or Mongol. Or Darkseid. Or any number of hugely powerful foes in his rogues gallery. But not Lex. Either way, something more than a welcome map might be an idea. He destroyed the fortress at the end of the Donner Cup for a reason. Okay, time to court controversy again. This is by far and away the best official Superman film so far. It nonetheless bored, annoyed, or creeped people out. There have been allegations that Superman is a stalker, or at best, a deadbeat dad. People were frustrated that he didn't get into a big fight. In fact, he doesn't throw a single punch in this entire film, and in a post-Spider-Man world, that was deemed not good enough. There was a contention that Brandon Routh was standing in the long shadow of Christopher Reeve, and failed to step outside it that the villain was shallow and hammy, and that Kryptonite is a lazy plot device. All of these are pretty fair assertions, based in truth. That doesn't stop it from being, for some, an exhilarating, touching, and thought-provoking ride with the original superhero. And now, in retrospect, a fond farewell to a movie series that was given a rare second chance to go out with something more approaching a sonic boom. Superman Returns, Good, Bad or Both, by Lucas Windsor from the Gonzo Planet Forum, read by Matt Ramsey. With the impending release of Man of Steel, the time feels right to take a look back at Superman's last live-action feature film, 2006's Superman Returns. The movie was directed by Brian Singer and written by Michael Doherty and Dan Harris, the same creative team behind X2, X-Men United, which was considered by many to be the best comic movie at the time. Anticipation was high for their take on the most famous superhero ever. Did they succeed? Was the movie good? Or was the movie bad? The answer to all those questions is yes. Brian Singer's pitch to Warner Brothers for Superman Returns was for it to be a direct sequel to Superman 2 and reintroduce the character to a new generation of filmgoers. Superman would return to Earth after five years of travelling space, including visiting his homeworld of Krypton. This pitch was almost immediately greenlit by Warner Brothers, 
and Singer and his writers went to work on a script. At this point, it should be mentioned that Superman is Brian Singer's favourite superhero. However, he is not a comic reader. His love for the character comes from the Christopher Reeve movies. When the film released, Superman Returns was a box office hit, making $391 million worldwide and received mostly positive reviews from critics. However, comic book fans were left feeling empty and dissatisfied. These fans were expecting a more modern take on the Superman movies, one that would add depth and complexity that the originals lacked. What was delivered to them was a genuine true sequel to Superman 2, one that felt exactly like its predecessors. In Singer's attempt to update the characters, he made many positive improvements to the originals, but completely ignored what had been happening in the Superman comics during the 80s and 90s. Even the most casual comic book fan was aware that Superman, his mythos, and all the supporting characters made a lot of changes during those two decades. While the Superman Returns versions of many characters were more complex and sophisticated than they were in the Christopher Reeve movies, they paled in comparison to the comic and television counterparts. The best example to look at is Lex Luthor, portrayed by Kevin Spacey. Spacey's turn as Luthor was darker and more malicious than Gene Hackman's performance of the original. However, the character was still the moustache-twirling archetype, evil for the sake of being evil. This Luther may have worked in the 70s, but it was not the Luther to which modern audiences were accustomed. The modern era Luther was a savvy and unscrupulous businessman. Succeed at all costs, but do not be so blatantly obvious about it. Michael Rosenbaum's Lex Luthor in the Smallville television series is the best example of the businessman Luther to date. To succeed, this Luther uses his great intelligence to manipulate and threaten people, whereas Superman Returns Luther uses his great intelligence to devise insane plots and surround himself with incompetent henchmen. Looking at Lex as a fan of newer Superman stories will lead to great disappointment. Many things feel wrong about him, his actions seem to make no sense, and neither does his grand plan of creating a new continent made of kryptonite. Looking at Lex as an evolution from Superman 2 feels right. His plan is absolutely a personal attack against Superman, and at points he feels like a greater threat than even Zod did. He is furious and blames all his failures on Superman. Lex's progression works and is real for this particular world. Lois Lane, played by Kate Bosworth, feels out of place and does not positively compare to any other incarnations of the character. This Lois does not have the frenetic energy that Margot Kidder brought to the character in Superman 1, nor does she possess the same charisma as either Kidder or many other versions of Lois throughout the years. Though upon closer investigation of what has happened to us in Superman 2, her character does make sense and is almost tragic. She got pregnant from the man she loves. Then the man just disappears for five years and she has to recover from this abandonment and move on with her life. This Lois is more bitter to the world than her counterparts, and for a very good reason. She has closed herself off to the world, and at the time of returns, is slowly opening herself back up. In all honesty, she should be just as furious with Superman as Lex is. She could be seen as a weak point in returns, because she isn't like the Margot Kidder version, nor is she like the comic version or the version from Superman the Animated Series, or any other Lois. This Lois has been through more emotional pain than any of those, not because of what happens in any of the movies, but because of what happens between Superman 2 and Returns. Superman himself comes off fairly well in Returns. He feels like the Christopher Reeve Superman. This could be because Brandon Routh has an uncanny resemblance to Reeve, but more likely, they both seem to have a lot of fun with playing Superman. Comparing this Kal-El to modern incarnations, he does feel rather saccharine. During the 90s and early 2000s, Superman has faced adversaries and challenges that the 70s Superman could not contemplate. He has seen many of his fellow heroes die in battle. Even he has fallen. Modern takes on Superman make him more world-weary, yet eternally optimistic. 
He shows more negative emotions like anger and hate than he ever did in the Christopher Reeve movies. In Superman Returns, however, he seems to embody the pure, some would call boring image of Superman most people assume him to be. This is not a knock against Reeve or Rouse's performance, it is just an observation, and it works for the movies in which they star. On the other hand, the clumsy buffoon that Clark Kent is shown as in Superman is not what people expect from the character. Clark Kent, the reporter, is competent and respected. He assists Lois whenever he does not have to cape up, and seems to always be around when Lois needs a spell check. Watching the comic relief, Clark, in the Superman movies, can be hard sometimes. Going back to the 70s when Superman was released, the clumsy Clark was used to keep children entertained through the less actiony bits of the movie. In returns, the aspect still exists, but feels like he's been cut back. Overall, the portrayal of both Superman and Clark is consistent between two and returns, which more than anything makes the latter feel like a true sequel. The changes, or lack thereof, to the characters is not the only reason for fan disappointment. Since the release of Superman in 1978, comic book movies have come a long way. Whereas Superman kept its story light so audiences could be immersed in the spectacle, newer superhero movies like Spider-Man 2, X2 and Batman Begins showed that spectacle and compelling stories could work together. In fact, those movies are even better because the two are mixed well. With Returns, though, audiences were given another light story, though compared to the story of the first movie, it was very deep. Lex was shown to have motivation for being evil, but it does not compare to the drive that Doc Ock had in Spider-Man 2, or the cunning maliciousness exhibited by Magneto in X-Men. The spectacle in Returns is grander than any previous Superman story, but just like the first movies, the spectacle comes at the expense of the grander story that could have been told. Another thing audiences have come to expect from superhero movies are the exquisite action set pieces. These are not necessary in all superhero movies, as X-Men had no standout action parts, but they do add nice variety. Whether it's the train sequence in Spider-Man 2, the White House opening in X2, or the rave scene in Blade, the nice action set piece excites audiences and gives them something to talk about afterwards. Superman Returns' big action set piece was a plane crash. This scene was a marvel to watch, but it felt shallow, as audiences have witnessed Superman stop plane crashes time and time again, all Superman seems to do in returns is pick things up. A good old superhero brawl would have spiced things up towards the end of the movie, except that is not possible when the main villain is Lex Luthor. He's just a normal guy with a super-powered brain. A fight reminiscent of the Neo and Agent Smith fight at the end of Matrix Revolutions, with Superman fighting another superpower, would have compelled standing ovations from theatres everywhere. Instead, the big climax is Superman picking up a giant rock and throwing it into space. The lack of story and compelling action did allow for many nice character moments. Every time Lex was on screen, he stole the show. Superman and Lois did have a nice chemistry in their scenes together. New characters like Parker Posey's Kitty Kowalski was entertaining, even though she's just an analogue for Mrs. Teshmacher. James Marsden's Richard White and Sam Huntington's Jimmy Olsen were underutilised, but still had a nice presence, though Cal Penn was completely mistreated as an actor. He's much too charismatic not to have any dialogue at all. Comic fans and audiences who are familiar with the new Millennium Superman and modern superhero movies left Superman Returns bored and underwhelmed. The character and, and they deserved much more than what was given. Superman should have had a powerful villain like Zod, Doomsday or Darkseid to face off against. The movie should be more action-packed. Let the spectacle be more than Superman can fly, pick up heavy objects and stop a bullet with his eye. Show some genuine character development for Superman and not just those around him. With this mindset, Superman Returns is a bad movie. 
Fans of Superman and Superman 2, however, were treated to the best movie in the Christopher Reeve Superman trilogy, ignoring Superman 3 and 4 as everyone should. It delivered more of the same and added character growth to basically every major character. Watching Returns after 1 and 2, one can clearly see the progression of Lex Luthor. Lois Lane being distant makes logical sense. Even Superman comes off as just slightly more sombre and definitely less cheesy. If Superman Returns was released in 1983, it would undoubtedly be called a classic. Brian Singer sent out to make a sequel to Superman 2 that honoured Superman 1 as well. Returns has basically all the same story beats as 1. It shows more character growth than 2. It rids itself of certain things that make audiences go, what the... like reversing time by flying backwards or the cellophane S. What was that? This was Brian Singer's love letter to one of his favourite movies and favourite characters. He wanted to make a sequel to Superman 2, and without a doubt he 100% succeeded. He may not have made the movie fans wanted, but he made the movie he wanted to make. Few directors can honestly say that. That makes this movie a success. Except the kid. The kid was stupid. Nobody liked him. Kryptonite 101. The radioactive rocks from Superman's home planet have in recent years been recognised for the lazy writing tools they represent, to the point where the very word can be used as shorthand for narrative contrivance. You have an all-powerful being that you want to catch off guard or introduce a little danger to, so it's simply a matter of how you work this substance into the story. Some of the laziest examples are found in these first movies. In the original 78 Superman, Lex uses deductive reasoning to ascertain that green kryptonite will hurt Superman and then acquires the kryptonite meteorite off-camera for his booby trap. All it takes is one sympathetic human and crisis is averted. In Superman Returns, Lex steals the rock from a museum, the very same plot device used in Superman 4 where he used everyday bolt cutters to clip the unbreakable hair of Superman. He then uses this rock in a madcap scheme that on paper defies all reason, yet still boils down to the same booby trap. In video games, to even the odds and give Superman a chance of being hurt, common thugs use kryptonite bullets... In Injustice Gods Among Us, non-super beings are able to trade blows with this godlike being after ingesting kryptonite pills. Since post-crisis it has been established that kryptonite will poison humans after prolonged exposure and eventually give them cancer, this seems to be rather crassly overlooked. As a device, it's exactly as lame as waving your hand dismissively and saying, uh, magic when somebody asks you a real question worth answering. In fact, it's worse because this explanation is supposed to have some basis in science. As well as the common green kind that makes Superman weak, can pierce his skin and kill him, there are a number of other colours with different effects. Red kryptonite. Pre-crisis effects include hallucinations, changing form, paralysis, and even the growing of a third eye at the back of Superman's head, which caused him to disguise the true effect by pretending that the kryptonite caused him to compulsively wear hats at all times. In Crypto the Superdog, effects on Crypto include temporary amnesia, loss of all his super canine powers, causing Crypto's tail to detach from his body and come to life, turning into a fish and body-swapping. Post-crisis, when writers actually put some thought into comics, Batman developed red kryptonite synthetically to stop Superman. 
It causes him pain, but it also amps up his powers until he can't function properly or fine-tune his reactions. Invariably, it also makes him mean, selfish, delirious, or horny. This premise appears to be modelled off the use of synthesised K in Superman 3, which, as we all know, makes bad Superman. Gold kryptonite permanently shuts off Kryptonian cells' ability to absorb yellow sunlight, thus shutting off their powers forever. It is thus rarely used. Blue kryptonite is the bizarro world version of green kryptonite, ergo it has beneficial effects on Superman, although sometimes it acts as a temporary power inhibitor. Black kryptonite separates kryptonians into two distinct entities. White kryptonite kills all plant life. Silver kryptonite makes Superman delusional. Orange kryptonite makes animals super. Gemstone kryptonite gives Superman the power to be very persuasive. There's also dual kryptonite, anti-kryptonite, x-kryptonite, slow kryptonite, magma kryptonite, bizarro red kryptonite, hybrid kryptonite, and cryptesium. And finally, my favourite slash least favourite, pink kryptonite. (sighs) In an alternate Earth-1 timeline in a 2003 Supergirl storyline by Peter David, who, by the way, is a respected comic writer, it affected the Superman of this reality by giving him gay tendencies. One of the results of this is Superman giving flattering compliments to Jimmy Olsen about his wardrobe and decorative sense. It spoofs the more innocent times of the Silver Age. For innocent, read ignorant. Lois Lane is depicted in this story as not understanding what has gotten into Superman might be Jimmy. This is not to be confused with Periwinkle Kryptonite. In Superman's family adventures, Periwinkle K makes Superman fabulous, causing him to dance with Lois and imagine he can see disco balls and pink walls. Needless to say, almost every colour mentioned above has been used in the show Smallville to make things happen. I would be happy if Kryptonite was abandoned as a concept for a good ten years. The use of it prevents writers from having to come up with clever, interesting character actions and plans that go further than simply messing with Superman's powers and abilities. One of the key stumbling points we always encounter is that watching Superman in film and animation is like playing Mass Effect with the left trigger held down. He's such an endlessly optimistic paragon that he rarely surprises us. Now, it's definitely arguable that we need a wonderful ideal to strive for, but it makes him less relatable as a human being because real-life choices aren't usually be wonderful, be a dick, or do nothing. There's a vast palette of shades of grey that we rarely see explored because he spends most of his time saving buses and trains. We very rarely see him torn between two complex scenarios, neither of which can be easily fixed. We don't see him encounter situations where his flight, strength and speed are worth nothing and he has to use his brain. Just making him weaker and hurting him so that he has an obstacle to overcome isn't compelling by today's standards. It's not even that he's too strong, because ultimately what happens in the action sequences should go beyond spectacle. The real trick is getting us to ask ourselves what we would do in a given situation, leave us worried and edgy over the possible outcomes, and deliberating the events afterwards. Kryptonite doesn't facilitate this, because nobody can relate to a single symbolic weakness used time and again to literally weaken Right now, psychological weaknesses and flaws are considerably more fascinating. 
Next up, we have a fascinating and hilarious anecdote from director Kevin Smith regarding his brief time writing an early script for what would later become Superman Returns. Kevin would, of course, like me to tell you to check out his Fat Man on Batman podcasts for a slice of pure awesome. And if you want to hear the whole of this production, you can track down An Evening with Kevin Smith on DVD. For those of you who don't know, because this has gone back a few years now, back in like 96, 97, at one point I was commissioned by Warner Brothers to write a script for a new Superman movie. And how it came about, I think, was that somebody saw Mallrats, somebody at Warner Brothers, some studio exec, and was just like, watched Brody and, and T.S. talk about the kryptonite condom. And they were like, this guy seems to know a lot about Superman. <laughs> So I got called in for, for a meeting at Warner Brothers, and um, they uh, said there's a couple of projects that uh, you can rewrite, because at this point, the script for Chasing Amy had started to circulate, and people were like, oh, he can write after all. So they were like offering me rewrite work. So I went into Warner Brothers, and said, we have three projects we could throw your way. I said, all right, what are they? And they said, one is a, a remake of an Outer Limits episode called The Architects of Fear. The second is Beetlejuice Goes Hawaiian. <laughs> To which I was like, really, didn't we say all we needed to say with the first Beetlejuice? Must we go tropical? And the, uh, the third was uh, a project called Superman Reborn, and my, that's what piqued my interest. I was like, Superman? You guys are going to make another Superman movie? And they said, we're thinking about it. I said, can I, I? I would love to do that. And they said, well, that's a long shot. You can't, I can't give you that right here in the room. That has to go through a bunch of people because it's a big Warner Brothers franchise. So I said, well, what do I have to do? What, who's, who's fucking dick do I have to suck to get this job? <laughs> and um, thankfully he didn't say his. Um, but he said, you know what? Why don't you take the script home? We have a, a draft of it. Take it home, read it, and tell me what you think about it. So I said, all right. I read the script, and I was just like, this is this fucking terrible. This is a horrible script. I mean, it was just really, really bad. It was kind of like the Batman TV show version of a Superman movie. Very campy. So I went back to Warner Brothers two days later and sat down with the dude, and he was like, what'd you think? I said, well, it was really quite bad. And he was like, well, bad meaning good? And I said, no, bad, just fucking terrible. And he said, he's looking at me, and I'm, I'm just going on for about five minutes how bad the script is. And I was like, do you pay somebody to write this? Is this somebody's, the writer of this script, somebody's fucking cousin? Because who lets somebody write this script? Do somebody, you pay this dude? Can you get the money back? Because this is horrendous, dude, horrendous. And he was looking at me, nodding and going, all right, well, thanks for coming in. So I left and I was driving home. And I got home and I called my friend Walters back in Jersey. And he's a big comic book fan. And I was like, dude, I just went into Warner Brothers and told him their script for Superman sucked. <laughs> rebel, rebel, Jersey represent. <laughs> Fuck Hollywood. <laughs> and Walters like, well, why didn't you just offer to write a better version? And I was like, ah. Because I hadn't thought of that. I said, fuck. But it didn't matter because the next day I got a call from my agent. And he was like, hey, they want to see you at Warner Brothers again. I said, really? All right. So I went back, and it was the same dude that I talked to originally, the same studio exec. And then there was another dude in the room with him. So I sat down with him, and the first guy was like, glad you came back. Do me a favor. Tell him what you told me about Superman, about the script. And I was like, um, all right. It's bad. sucks. Did your cousin write it? Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Did that for about five minutes, and then they both just nodded at me quietly, and then they're like, all right, well, thanks for coming in. 
So I went back home. Next day, I got another call from my agent going, they want to meet with you at Warner Brothers again. I said, all right. Because I really didn't have much to do. So I go back into the room, and it's that dude, the second dude, and now there's a third dude in the room. And they're all in semicircle chairs, and they put me in one chair, and the first guy's like, tell the, tell the two guys, tell this guy what you told us about the Superman script. And I just imagined it as a real kind of water cooler situation. Like one dude's standing around the water cooler, and somebody else was there as well getting some coffee, and he was just like, you should hear what the fucking clerks dude said about the Superman script. And the guy's like, what'd he say? And he was like, well, you know what, fuck it, I'll just bring him in. So I told them again, and it went on like that. It went on like that for almost a whole straight week. I would go back, there'd be another person in the room. And I kept saying the same shit over and over. And finally, I got to the guy at the top, who's Lorenzo de Bonaventura. Now there's like six to eight guys sitting around a large table with Lorenzo at the one end and me at the other. And they're all like, tell him, tell Lorenzo what you told us about Superman. And so I launch into my spiel and shit. And Lorenzo's the first guy who's like, well, what would you do differently? And I said, um, well, I hadn't thought about it, but I mean, I guess you could try this, 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 and that, and that. And he's nodding and shit. And he's like, well, you know what? We're going to give you a shot at it. And I said, all right, awesome. And he goes, it's pending approval of the producer. And I said, who's the producer? And they said, John Peters. I said, um, all right, what do I got to do? They're like, you got to go meet with him. I said, okay. Now, John Peters, if you don't know, uh, he's a producer on movies. Like, he, he was an exec producer, or producer in name only on Rain Man. He was a producer on Batman. Um, he was a producer on the main event, the Barbra Streisand boxing movie. <laughs> Which is how he got his start in the business. He used to be Barbra Streisand's hairdresser. And then one day he became a producer. Because in Hollywood, you just kind of fail upwards. <laughs> so anyway, I'm going to meet John Peters. And I go to his place, and he very much... he was. Hardcore producer on Batman. He was there every day. It was kind of his baby from beginning to end. And when you get to his house, it kind of shows because it's kind of like driving up to Wayne Manor. This is a big mansion through woods and shit like that. And it looks like there's a holographic cave to one side. <laughs> so you get up and shit and they bring you in. And he shows up and he's wearing like short tennis shorts and shit. And he's kind of a built dude. But he's got a perfect head of hair. Like well coiffed or coiffed. <laughs> So I come down and sit down with him. He says, they tell me you got to take on Superman. I said, I, I do. He said, let me hear it. And I told him. After a while, I'm done. He's just nodding, looking at me, nodding. He goes, you know why you and me are going to do a good job on Superman? And I said, why? He's going, because you and me, we get Superman. You know why? I said, no. He said, because you and me, we're from the streets. <laughs> Now, I, I grew up in suburban New Jersey. <laughs> Never saw a black man until I was about 28. <laughs> like, I'm the farthest thing from the streets there are. You know, I, I grew up on a street. <laughs> but not on the streets. And I'm looking at this guy going like, I'm from the suburbs, you're a hairdresser, neither of us are from the street. <laughs> but I don't want to say that, because fuck it, I want the job. So I said, uh... Who would you see playing Superman? And he said, I, if I had to cast it right now? I said, well, yeah. And he said, Sean Penn. And I was like, Sp Spicoli? 
because it was an interesting choice. And he's like, yeah, did you see you see Dead Man Walking? Because that was out at the time. And I said, yeah. And he's going, well, look in his eyes in that movie. He's got the eyes of a violent, caged animal, of a fucking killer. And I was like, dude, it, it's Superman. He's like, I got some directives for you. If you're going to move forward on the process, some things I want you to do and don't in the script. He's going, three things. Okay. I said, all right. One, I don't want to see him in that suit. Two, I don't want to see him fly. And three, he's got to fight a giant spider in the third act. And I'm like, let's, let's go back to one. When you say you don't want him in the suit, and he's like, don't want to see him in it. Don't want it. looks too faggy, he goes. And I was just like, no fags on the street, I take it. <laughs> but I don't, I don't say that because I want the fucking job. So uh, he said, flying, flying. I don't want to see him fly. I said, well, that's, I mean, that's kind of the suit and flying defines Superman. So don't want to see it. Don't want to see him fly. No scenes where he's flying around carrying people. Horseshit. <laughs> all right, all right, no flying. I said, but the giant spider intrigues me. <laughs> why, uh, why that? And he's like, do you know anything about spiders? And I said, I mean, no. And he said, well, they're the fiercest killers in the insect kingdom. <laughs> and I was like, what's, what's that have to do with? our non-flying Superman. <laughs> and he said, because there's going to be a scene in this movie, a scene that I want. When I saw King Kong when I was a kid, there's a scene where the doors open up and King Kong's revealed. And it's a real big moment. I want that moment in this movie. I want some doors to open up, but big fucking spiders there. <laughs> so I was just like, um, all right, I'll give it a shot. So I went back to Warner Brothers and sat down with them and they said, he, uh, we heard from him, he likes you, uh, we're going to hire you, we're going to move forward. Did he bring up the spider? I said, he did. He brought up the spider. He tell you guys about the spider. They're like, every day with the fucking spider. I said, what should I do? They're like, just do it, but try not to call it a spider. Call it, can you call it something else? And I was just like, Thanagarian snare beast? And they were like, there, go. So um, I was ready to go start writing, and then I was told I had to write an outline first. And I was just like, what do you mean, an outline? They said, yeah, don't just write the script. You have to give us an overview of the story so we can approve the story so we can go write the script and we need you to write an outline. I said, can I include dialogue? They said, yeah, go ahead. And then dialogue's about the only thing I know how to do. So I went home and wrote 80 pages, just an 80-page outline with tons of dialogue and very few kind of prose passages. And so I turned it in, and I, I was in Los Angeles all this time. I wanted to go back to Jersey. I turned in, I say, I'm finished. I'm going to go back to Jersey and let me know what you guys think, and you can reach me back home. And they said, well, first off, um, this is 80 pages. And I was like, yeah, yeah, that's the outline. They're like, an outline is like four pages max. <laughs> and I was just like, well, you know, i just overcompensating because I grew up fat. <laughs> Uh, they said, second off, you can't leave. you got to stick around here and read John the outline. And I said, what, what do you mean, read John the outline? They said, yeah, he likes to have the outlines read to him by the writer. I said, what do I, have, fucking talk him in when I'm done, too? So I go back up to fucking Wayne Manor. 
I sit down with John, and John puts me in a chair, and he's got a couch in this huge fucking living room. He lays down on the couch, and he goes, and I said, what's, what's with that? And he's like, I just, I like to visualize the movie while it's being read to me. So I'm looking at it up here. He was building a little screen in his mind's eye. This was a screen. So I was just like, all right, here we go. And I start reading. And uh, since it's Superman, you know, you tend to use the term Superman a lot. And I didn't want to keep doing that. It gets a little boring. So being a comic book fan, I changed it up. Called him Kal-El when he was on Krypton. You know, man of tomorrow, man of steel, shit like that. So I'm reading the first few pages when he's on Krypton when he's a baby. Because I have to redo the origin. And uh, it's Kal-El this, Kal-El that, blah, 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 blah. He's like, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. Who, who the fuck is Kal-El? <laughs> and I was like, Kal-El is Superman. He's going, all right. Why? And I was like, that's his Kryptonian name. He goes, I'm like, Krypton's where he's from. He's like, right, 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 fucking planet, boom. All right, all right. Go. So we go back into it and shit, and I read it, and, and when I'm all done, he's like, all right, I think we got a movie here. He's going, the problem, though, you're missing some beats, some action beats. You need an action beat every ten pages. Something big has to happen. I said, well, what are you thinking about? He's like, well, it's just an example. Like when you go, you have a scene where Brainiac goes to the Fortress of Solitude looking for Superman. Superman's dead at this point. hope I didn't spoil the movie for anybody. So Brainiac's looking for him the Fortress of Solitude, and something should happen there. There should be a big fucking fight. I'm like, but Superman's dead at this point. He's like, I know, I know, but can't Brainiac fight something else up there? And I was like, well, like what? He's like, what about like Superman's guards, his soldiers? And I'm like, why, why would Superman need guards? You know, he's, he's Superman. He's, and plus it's called the Fortress of Solitude. Nobody's up there. And he said, well, Jesus Christ. He's going, how about, what about, where is this? In the Antarctic? I said, yeah. He's like, what about polar bears? And I was like, polar bears? He said, yeah, have them, have them fight some polar bears. Brainiac shows up. He's trying to get in the fortress. Polar bears come at him, and he just fucking kills one, and one runs away. Because we don't want to piss off the PETA people. And I said, you want me to write a scene where Brainiac is razzling polar bears? And he says, yeah, you know anything about polar bears? And I said, no, I don't. He's like, polar bears are the fiercest killers in the animal kingdom. And at this point, I'm just like, this dude has way too much access to the Discovery Channel. <laughs> so I get done with my my first draft, and, and I send it in, and they like it and whatnot. They start sending it off to people. They send it off to Nick Cage, Tim Burton. During this time, we have the premiere for Chasing Amy. And I invite John, because I know this dude doesn't know anything about my work. In fact, I, I don't think anybody at Warner Brothers knows much about my work beyond having read the script for Chasing Amy. Because I was always afraid somebody at Warner Brothers would, would be like, we, we gave our fucking million dollar, multi-million dollar franchise to the clerks guy? <laughs> like, he's going to turn in a script with fucking Clark, you know, jumping on Lois going, how many fucking dicks did you suck? <laughs> So I figured it was fair to kind of invite the producer of the movie I was writing to see my new movie. So I said, we're having this premiere for Chasing Amy. You want to come? And he said, yeah, yeah. And he showed up, and I talked to him the next day on the phone. 
I said, what'd you think? He was going, interesting, interesting flick, which in Hollywood means I didn't like it at all. He's going, you know what I really like, though? He's going, the, the black guy, the gay black guy. I like that. I like that a lot. I like his voice. I said, yeah, yeah, Dwight, he's very funny. And he said, that's what we need in our movie. <laughs> and I was like, you want Dwight to be in the movie? I know he'd fucking be happy to do it. He said, no, we just need that voice. We need that, that character, somebody like him in our movie. Can't Brainiac have a sidekick? And I was like, yeah, I guess. And he said, give him a little robot sidekick and give him that dude's voice. I said, really? You want the, the robot to sound like a gay black man? And he said, that's what this movie needs is a fucking, just a gay R2-D2. And at this point, the Star Wars movie was in re-release and it opened up that previous weekend, made like 30 million bucks and shit like that. And he had gone to see it again. So he was like, we need more shit like that in our movie. We need something, something that'll, like, we can make toys of and shit like that, like Chewy. We need Chewy in this movie. And I was like, you want me to just fucking write Chewy into the movie? <laughs> Superman razzling Chewy? And he said, no, but just something like that. Like, maybe Brainiac has a dog, and it's a little cute dog, and we can make a toy out of it. Because that's what it's about. we got to sell some toys off this movie. So I, that's what I need in this movie. I said, I don't really know if that's going to work. He said, don't tell me it's not going to work. I, I want my Chewy. And I was like, I got your fucking Chewy right here. But I don't say that because I like the job. So um, Tim Burton and Nick Cage sign on based on my draft. And I was kind of excited. I said, that's, that's kind of neat. You know, fucking Tim Burton, Batman, and Nick Cage, you know. Fucking Nick Cage. <laughs> but um, when Tim Burton got signed on to the project, Tim Burton signed a pay or play deal, which essentially means no matter what happens, Tim Burton gets paid whatever his directing fee was. I think at that point it was $10 million bucks, 5 to $10 million. Um, Tim Burton, once he signs the deal, turns around and says, I'm going to bring on my guys to write the script. And the Warner Brothers guys were like, well, what about the script we're developing. And he said, I don't want to use that. I want to do my own script. Presumably a version of Superman where he has scissors for hands. <laughs> so they turn around they tell me, like, Kevin, we're, we're kind of done. Tim wants to go another way with, with a new writer. And I was like, all right. You know, and I wasn't really that upset. I didn't feel, because I'd worked on it for two drafts, and I got to hang out with a really fucked up kooky dude. <laughs> a dude who I can tell stories about for the rest of my life. Um, and, like, they paid me a lot of money to do it. Like, I would have done it for free, but I didn't tell them that. But they paid me a bunch of money to do it. And it was just fun. Like, I got to work on Superman. I got incredible access into the DC archives and shit like that. And people would give me free Superman shit all the time because I was working on it. And then I got shit canned off and I started throwing Superman stuff away because who needs to be reminded? But I was really reminded the next summer when I went to the movies and saw a movie that John Peters had produced. And it was called The Wild Wild West. <laughs> so I'm sitting in the theater watching the movie. I'm like, good lord, this is a piece of shit. <laughs> but then all of a sudden, like a giant fucking spider shows up.
The development for the fifth Superman film took 18 years. What I'm about to read to you will explain why and how astoundingly difficult a project like this was to get off the ground. The most important early contributing factor to bear in mind was the immensely successful 1989 release of Tim Burton's Batman. After Cannon went justifiably bankrupt, the rights reverted to the Salkins. Ilya wrote the imaginatively titled Superman The New Movie, in which Superman died and was reborn in the bottled Kryptonian city of Kandor. This predated the comic death of Superman. In 1993, after the aforementioned death and resurrection and the comics proved successful, Warner purchased the rights back from the Salkins. They handed the project to producer John Peters, who hired Jonathan Lempkin for scripting duties. Warner instructed Lempkin to write for mainstream audiences, the MTV generation of the 1990s. The additional family film approach would add to Superman's toyetic appeal, similar to Batman Forever. Major toy companies insisted on seeing Lempkin's screenplay before the deadline of the American International Toy Fair. This was the script for Superman Reborn. It featured Lois Lane and Clark Kent with relationship troubles and Superman's battle with Doomsday. When Superman professes his love to Lois, his life force jumps between them just as he dies, giving Lois a virgin birth. Their child, who grows to 21 years old in three weeks, becomes the resurrected Superman and saves the world. I'm not making this up. Warner Brothers did not like the script because of the similarly underlying themes with Bruce Wayne's obligation of heroism found in Batman Forever. And not just because it was dumb, horrible and creepy. It's also Search for Spock. His life force jumps into McCoy and then he resurrects and grows to adulthood within the space of a few days. Oh, it is. Okay. In 1995, Peters gave the script to Gregory Poirier for a rewrite. This second draft had Brainiac creating Doomsday infused with kryptonite blood. Superman had romance problems with Lois Lane and visits a psychiatrist before he is killed by Doomsday. An alien named Cadmus, a victim of Brainiac, steals his corpse. Superman is resurrected and teams with Cadmus to defeat Brainiac. Powerless, Superman wears a robotic suit that mimics his old powers until he can learn to use his powers again in... On his own, which according to the script are a mental discipline called Finyar, a concept similar to the Force. Other villains include Parasite and Silver Banshee. Prairie's script impressed Warner Brothers, but it was this one which Kevin Smith read and found appalling, thus finding himself explaining to room after room of executives as to why. In August 96, Smith pitched his own script for Superman Lives after being invited to give his input by Warner Brothers, who had no access to men and women who could write and enjoyed comics. Smith's script saw Ben Affleck as the Man of Steel trading blows with Brainiac in Kryptonian armor, Jason Lee as Brainiac, and Jason Mewes as Jimmy Olsen. Still not making it up. Warner had Smith's script rewritten by Wesley Strick, writer of Wolf, The Saint, and Doom. Tim Burton and Nicolas Cage signed on with pay-or-play contracts, meaning that even though we know this 1998 movie didn't happen, these two ham-fists, convinced of their own genius, got paid millions of dollars either way. Children were brought in to approve concept art for its toy potential. Dan Gilroy was brought in to do another rewrite of Strick's version of Smith's version of Proria's version of Lemkin's script, principally to bring it down in budget from $190 million to $100 million. Gilroy wrote two drafts in the end. After a year, $30 million had been spent on pre-production with nothing to show for it, although Kevin Spacey had been approached for the part of Lex Luthor. 
In 2002, J.J. Abrams wrote a reboot for the film series named Superman Flyby. However, the prospective director dropped out in favour of Charlie's Angels Full Throttle. It was none other than McGee, who has to date not directed a single bearable movie. At the same time, Batman vs. Superman was being pitched with Wolfgang Peterson tipped to direct, while Akiva Goldsman, the man who had not five years earlier soundly fucked the Batman franchise in the bin, was hired to rewrite that script. The pitch-black plot would have involved Alfred, Gordon, Dick Grayson, and Bruce Wayne's new wife all being killed, and a miserable, depressed Superman now divorced from Lois. Both heroes would be manipulated by Lex Luthor into killing one another. Inspired by Tobey Maguire's performance in Spider-Man, Peterson was searching for actors who can really act and give complexity and emotions, but would have the fun of being a great superhero and maybe pump up a little bit. Christian Bale was offered that Sharon's got her head in her hands right now. Christian Bale was offered the role of Batman in both this and Darren Aronofsky's soon-to-be-stalled Batman Year One project. Josh Hartnett was approached for Superman. You can even see a poster for this film in I Am Legend, adapted by Goldsman and starring Will Smith, who had been asked a few years earlier to play Superman, as had anyone in the late 1990s between the ages of 24 and 40 and in possession of a penis. Smith declined with ethnicity concerns. He was later courted to play Captain America. Back to Superman Flyby. Turning in his script in July 2002, J.J. Abrams penned an origin story that included Krypton besieged by a civil war between Jor-El and his corrupt brother, Katazor. Before Katazor sentences Jor-El to prison, Kal-El is launched to Earth to fulfil a prophecy. Adopted by Jonathan and Martha Kent, he forms a romance with Lois Lane in the Daily Planet. However, Lois is more concerned with exposing Lex Luthor, written as a government agent obsessed with UFO phenomena. Clark reveals himself to the world of Superman, bringing Katazor's son, Tizor, and three other Kryptonians to Earth. Superman is defeated and killed, and visits Jor-El, who commits suicide on Krypton while in prison. In Kryptonian heaven... Resurrected, he returns to Earth and defeats the four Kryptonians, while the script ends with Superman off to Krypton, leaving a cliffhanger for a sequel. What? <laughs> he, j- Brett Ratner was hired to direct in 2002, despite being in legal terms some sort of household grub with a camera. Hartnett was offered $100 million for a three-picture deal, but turned it down. Christopher Reeve, who worked on Smallville, put forward that show star Tom Welling as Superman. Brendan Fraser tested, as did Jerry O'Connell, David Boreanaz, James Marsden, Ashton Kutcher, and Paul Walker. Eventually, Ratner dropped out of the project in March 2003, blaming casting difficulties and violent disagreements with John Peters. McGee returned to the project. He approached Shia LaBeouf for Jimmy Olsen with an interest to cast an unknown for Superman. Scarlett Johansson as Lois Lane, I want one, and Johnny Depp for Lex Luthor. Henry Cavill did a screen test for the part. Josh Schwartz of Chuck fame was commissioned to rewrite J.J. Abrams' script. Abrams lobbied for the chance to direct his own story, but Warner replaced McGee instead with Brian Singer, who had big ideas about returning to the Superman series roots. And now that you've heard all that, I think it's pretty bloody obvious as to why they wanted to return to a tried, tested and proven formula. Because if there had been one more cook involved in creating this super broth, it would basically have taken 92 years to film, cost $10 trillion and require the participation of every living soul on planet Earth.
Now, Ashton Kutcher, who I mentioned earlier, decided not to take the role because it would clash with his sterling, sterling comedy work on that 70s show. However, he also cited The Curse of Superman, which I held off on mentioning last week. George Reeves, who played Superman in the Adventures TV show, was found dead of possible suicide in a hotel room in Los Angeles, 1959. Christopher Reeves suffered a riding accident in 1995 and was paralysed until the time of his death nine years later. Lee Quigley, who played baby Superman in the Reeves film, died at age 14 from solvent abuse. Bud Collier played the animated Superman in 1941 in the Fleischer cartoons. 28 years later, he was dead. Kirk Allen played Superman in two low-budget 1940s serials. He developed Alzheimer's disease and died aged 88 in 1999. I'm going to go ahead and debunk this curse as superstitious bullshit that belongs back in a time when we bashed our heads open to let the evil spirits out. It's actually quite insulting to the real men who played this role of a lifetime and experienced their own trials, difficulties, and ultimately their own deaths, which were in no way connected to the last son of Krypton. Here's a list of actors who have played Superman in film, TV, and animation. Tom Welling, Dean Cain, Gerard Christopher, Tim Daly, George Newborn, Mark Valley, Roger Rose, James Denton, Danny Dark, Bob Hastings, Matt Bomer, Mark Harmon, Christopher McDonald, Adam Baldwin, Trey Parker, Seth MacFarlane, Patrick Warburton, and Nolan North. So when someone mentions this curse, send them in my direction and I will school their asses. In fact, Brandon Routh was aware of this curse, but decided to take the role nonetheless, surmising that something terrible might happen to him anyway, and he would never have gotten the chance to play The Man of Tomorrow. This is why Superman doesn't work alone, by Sharon Shaw. In preparation for this podcast, I've watched a lot of Superman, like a lot of Superman. Not that I hadn't seen most of it before, but in concentrated doses, one of the key factors of the man in tights that I was was aware of, but had trouble putting my finger on, became more and more clear. As one man, the focused upon hero and central protagonist, he's dull. Now, I understand the irony of accusing the ultimate good guy of being boring, I'm playing into the hands of those who claim women just like bad boys, right? But bad boys, by and large, are boring too, if that's all they are. What's interesting about people is that they're not just one thing. They're like onions, or possibly parfait. Point is, the more I get to know them, the more I find out about their motivations and challenges, the more I want to know about them. Yet Superman, in all his years and movie incarnations, has never really changed that much. He's the epitome of the hero, the child of the sun who knows good from bad and always does the right thing. 
but from Greek mythology to Battlestar Galactica, it's not the men who managed to personify Apollo that I'm captivated by, at least not as long as their perfect chins remain pointed resolutely upwards. It's when the cracks start to show that I really sit up and take notice, when someone has to weigh evil against lesser evil, or trade off types of harm to innocent people, and it is possible to do this narratively without actually having your hero do anything obviously unpleasant. One example of contrast and reflection working brilliantly with The Last Son of Krypton is in animated form, and I strongly recommend anyone who hasn't watched any Justice League to seek it out, if only so that you can agree with me. Bruce Wayne is a pretty multi-layered character in his own right, taking monstrous form to fight on the side of good, the original Dark Angel of Gotham. But when he's offset against Clark, the two of them leap to something far greater than the sum of their parts. Batman's behavioural absolutes, which could be interpreted as a moral code, but I think are actually an acknowledgement that moral codes are insufficient, far outweigh Clark's truth, justice, all that stuff as a form of self-regulation. See the film Justice League Doom for one of the best examples of this. Bruce creates contingency plans to take out the leaguers individually should any of them go rogue, and expects that they would all pitch in should the bad apple prove to be himself. Clark has to be actively convinced that such countermeasures are necessary. When watching the early Superman movies, there were just so many occasions when I couldn't help but imagine Batman standing behind Superman, cowl angled downwards, arms folded. Reversing the Earth's direction to undo the death of one woman? No. Amateur brain surgery to cover up the fact that you slept with the same woman? No. Interfering with international relations and removing nuclear weapons from every state on the planet? No. And you know what? I'm with you, Bruce. By introducing characters who are good, but in a different way, tone and depth can be added to a golden paragon. Shadows and shade can enable a more objective examination of their moral structure. It can also be done with a well-handled antagonist, see the Dark Knight, but the average supervillain is usually straight-up dull too, because they're surrounded by incompetent henchmen and lazy motivations which tell you precisely jack about who they are as people. In Superman Returns, it is by no means Lex Luthor who provides the contrast against which Kal-El's internal struggle can be measured. It is, surprisingly, Richard White. This is not intended as a criticism of Kevin Spacey's performance. It's pretty clear that Singer wanted to honour the original two Superman films extensively, and I can't see Hackman's overbaked ham being difficult to emulate for someone as accomplished as Spacey. Likewise, I never envisioned a day when I would offer up high praise for James Marsden's acting abilities. He is best known, after all, for playing someone perceived as being the most boring comic book hero in the history of all time, although read Astonishing X-Men to see how Joss Whedon handles the challenge of making Cyclops both interesting and entertaining. But think of the position that Richard is put in, and how he responds to it. In his world, he's the hero, a highly competent editor, Lois points out, whilst likely with some bias, that he has single-handedly saved the Daily Planet's international section. A pilot, he takes me up all the time. A man successfully raising a child who is not his own. Lois may claim to Lex that Richard is Jason's father, but it seems pretty obvious from her tone that she knows otherwise, and that's a hell of a fiction to keep up for five years for someone who's supposed to be an identifiable heroine. Now someone turns up on the scene who clearly still has his partner's heart and eclipses his own abilities, yet he throws no tantrums, issues no ultimatums, and in fact continues to respond calmly and honestly to Lois's emotional confusion. And he does it without the gritted teeth and stoicism that might be expected of a traditional hero. When Lois is in danger, he does what he is capable of, and in fact rescues his family from their cell, albeit that all three of them subsequently need a further rescue from the Man of Steel. But when he lets the boat drop, Superman doesn't grab hold of Lois and Jason. That's Richard's job. 
He even asks him, have you got them? Clark is relinquishing what might be interpreted as his rightful role as husband and father because he just can't do it, not in tandem with protecting the rest of the world, something which is emphasised at the end when he acknowledges his paternity of Jason but makes no attempt to muscle in on Lois's family life. Compared to his almost childish attitude when he meets her on the roof and takes her flying, this demonstrates some serious character growth to me, and without Richard to show that a man who isn't more powerful than a locomotive can still do something honourable, it would just look like Superman's natural goodness winning out, adding another layer of boring to his story. As Superman Returns closes, I am left with a genuine feeling that I have seen a human being make a supremely difficult decision, with no obvious right answer, and that is of more interest to me than a thousand bulletproof eyeballs. couple of little things you might not have noticed. Gertrude Vanderworth, the old lady who gives Lex all her money in return for his sexual favours, is played by Noel Neal, who played Lois Lane in the George Reeves Adventures of Superman. Bo the bartender is Jack Larson, who was Jimmy Olsen in the same show, hence he's still wearing his bow tie. Interestingly, considering Kevin Smith's casting choice, Ben Affleck played George Reeves in Hollywoodland. Okay, somehow the line... By now you will have reached your 18th year, as it is measured on Earth. By that reckoning, I will have been dead for many thousands of your years. Directly contradicted later in the first film, turns up again. Hackman's Luther mentions Krypton blew up in 1948, hence Baby Clark in the early 50s, landing on Earth roughly two and a half years later. They even retcon the timeline in Superman Returns so that Clark and the Kryptonite meteor touch down in approximately 1978. This matches up with Superman spending five years away from 2001 to 2006, all of it travelling back and forth as the deleted scenes show. He's only really spent a few hours exploring Krypton, retreating when it was full of Kryptonite. We can definitely escape, Bender. All you have to do is bend the hatch off this steam pipe. Hey, yeah! No good, it's full of steam! So we could go into all kinds of scientific musings for why Jarrell says, by now I will have been dead many thousands of your years, when in actuality it was only 20. But the best explanation was that the script was rewritten three times back in the late 70s, and this conflicting line is a hangover from that. As to why it's in Superman Returns... Whoever answers correctly wins a bun. I mentioned last week how today you can't believe a man can fly when the wires are so obvious. But what's bad for the practical goose is also bad for the CGI gander, and there are some truly shocking moments of millennial rubber in this film, with a wall-eyed wax doll super creep tumbling around in the air, not convincing the sharp-eyed for a second that this thing is a living creature. 
They're made all the more obvious by the moments we know we're definitely looking at Mr. Routh. So it's going to take the Man of Steel movie to fully convince us this third time that a man can fly, not a pixelated puppet or a bloke on a string. Comic Fan on Superman by David Hartrick, read by Matt Ramsey. Let me start where, as you know, I always start. Batman. Looking at the breadth of the character's reach, there are three prevalent medias that shape the Bruce Wayne we're familiar with today. These are the world of comics, the Gotham of computer games, and the film and television representations. To take these in turn, let's look at Batman in the comics. Over time, the character has changed dramatically from a whiter-than-white hero fighting villains with ridiculous names and awful signature styles, to a dark and troubled avenging angel facing down serial killers, masterminds and huge physical threats on genuinely frightening levels. Despite the radical evolution, we've come to a point where we can definitively explain who Bruce Wayne is. We know his motivations and his tropes, we know Batman is always prepared, we know his family, his twisted sense of duty, and we can understand the intricacies of his decisions. To take this onto the world of film and TV, we also have definitive versions of the character there. They exist in a world outside of the comic book Gotham for sure, but with Nolan's real-world take and the animated series, we have places to send people where they will come away with a true sense of Batman the icon. The films do raise some questions, particularly as the Batman of the comics would never take a leave of absence such as the plot device in The Dark Knight Rises, but they do take time to shape the world, the man, the costume and the believability to a point where we can say, yep, that's Batman, all right. The animated series goes even further to not only establish the characters involved, but also the world to a point where from a single frame we can tell that this is that Gotham. Then look at the Arkham games. Not the world of films or the unsatisfying feel of the games that copied the look but never grasped the wonderful scope of the television series, but another definitive take on Batman, another place to send people knowing they'll return with a true and proper sense of the character. This is a stylized take, but the cornerstones remain and we have a perfectly blended world to satisfy fans of the film, television work and fans of the comic. As a Batman fanatic, I remember clearly in the first game solving one of the Riddler's clues and finding the Ratcatcher's stash. Trust me, if you know who Otis Flanagan is, you know more than most. And to find a little nugget like that in the game made it feel like it had been made with me in mind. So, three different medias, but all definitive takes on Batman in their respective worlds. Three places to have the appetite properly sated. As has been noted, I'm a bit of an obsessive, and rather than sneer at perceived inaccuracy or slight, I'm just so grateful to have places to go to immerse myself into different Gothams, dependent on my mood. Which brings me to Superman. If I were to ask you to explain Superman to me, this is what I reckon 99% of people would say in no particular order. Sent to Earth as a baby, blue and red suit, symbolic S on his chest, can fly faster than a speeding bullet, leaked all buildings in a single bound, Lois Lane, Metropolis, Clark Kent, Smallville, etc, etc. But here's the thing. As a fan of Superman, I can tell you none of that accurately describes Superman. Maybe Superman's world, but what of the man himself? This is an alien sent from a dying planet with only fragments of his previous life scattered around Earth in objects and places. 
Think of the displacement issues, the hole that would exist if that was you, growing up knowing you're different, and the fear that very thought brings you as a child where fitting in is the only way to fit in. Then think about a teenager slowly discovering that he can do things other people can't. But I'm not just talking about the strength or flight here. For example, imagine suddenly discovering that all those voices you can hear in your head are other people, not just figments of your imagination, but your friends and family, and that your hearing is so magnified you have to discover a way to effectively switch it off when required, or your world would be an unbearable mess of permanent noise and confusion. Just take a moment to imagine life in a city where you can hear everything. Genuinely terrifying. But then go further and think about the guilt involved when you refine your hearing to make life manageable. But because you've switched it off, I wish there was a better way to say that, you don't hear that mugging, or burglary, or murder. Think about a life knowing you could have prevented something simply by hearing it, but you had effectively chosen not to for what could be perceived by some as a selfish reason. The sense of conflict would be all-encompassing and motivational in so many different ways, and this is just one aspect of his skill set. To take the analogy further, imagine discovering you had heat vision. You were sitting there one day, rage boiling up inside, and suddenly, bang, a physical manifestation that you can't explain or initially control. What if that occurred in one of the many conflicts of daily life at school? What if you hurt someone? For God's sake, what if you fried your parents? Of course, you could remove all that potential for gripping story by saying when he discovers the fortress, his powers switch on, but that makes no sense, literally, or for a writer to throw away such a rich scene to mine. Now, while these may seem like the extremes, they aren't. They're the layers of character that we've never had in satisfactory sense with Superman. I'm a huge fan, but I can't love him as I do other comic book characters, as I simply don't know him as well. And there are flaws across all forms of media. For starters, the bedrock of it all, the comics... The really great Superman stories, and those we class as definitive, are often done so because they are handled in such an abnormal way to the regular character depiction. All-Star Superman is a masterpiece by Grant Morrison, getting to the core of an unbreakable man facing his own death. But guess what? The All-Star line is in a different world. To get this level of story and depth in a Superman story, Morrison has to effectively recreate him in a parallel universe, even going so far as to retell his familiar origin on page one over a few panels. Mark Wade's Kingdom Come gives you an older Superman conflicted by a changing world, eventually driven to violence and despair before a reckoning and rediscovery of his core values. But guess what? Yep, you're right. This has been classed as another world for fear of DC's Golden Boy ever being associated with a story that might show a darker side to his character. Even the really great Superman stories rarely tell you about the conflict within. It's not about darkness. There are plenty of Superman tales that go down that route. It's about depth, and rarely is that harnessed effectively. If a character has such a powerful skill set as Superman, his biggest conflicts will be in discovering and adapting to that skill set, choosing when and where to use it, and feeling like the most powerful man in the world, and keeping a lid on both the arrogance that could bring, but also the helplessness as terrible things still happen. Rarely is this accurately captured. The Earth 2 series tries, but falls some way short. The opportunity has been ignored with the new 52 relaunch to start again at this level. So even as a fan, there's a hole in the comics that has never quite been filled. Unusual for such a utopian character to be in as near as damn it fully fleshed out form on the wider public consciousness, but at heart still have so much to be explored. So the world of computer games. We get watered down Superman, usually with a key skill removed for some reason in each level. The kryptonite excuse. Always the kryptonite excuse. To enable a fairer battle, or a ridiculous change of character to facilitate the motivation for the game, such as the killer Superman and Injustice, or worst of all, a terrible game reskinned to sell it to gullible fans. 
It says something when by far the most accurate and best representation of Superman in games is the pastiche in Lego Batman 2. But again, as above with the comics, take a moment to consider the possibility of a proper Superman game. Imagine the world the skill set opens up both on and off Earth, the conflicts that complain to story motivation, the cameos that can accurately move the story on, how you can make a game just from the boy finding his powers one by one. Take the Gotham of the Arkham games and think of a Metropolis open world scenario where your super hearing and x-ray vision help you explore a complex and well-designed world piece by piece. Again, so much to explore, so much potential, no one captures it properly. And so lastly and closer to the point of this instance, the film and TV representations. Let me deal with Smallville off the cuff. It was a Clark Kent story so diluted it always felt contrived. It never dealt with the emergence of these powers in any other sense than I can do X, I can use X to save those people, wow, X is part of me now. No shades of grey, no conflict, no mental anguish. Just a love interest, some good-looking friends, and the occasional will chuck them a figure from the comics as the ratings are falling episode. The animated series had good potential, but was too short-lived and swallowed whole by the fantastic Batman one. It never stood a chance of feeling like anything other than an add-on. The Justice League animated stuff in various forms has him as one of a team and often far too good to be interesting. Again, so much potential, so little actual payoff. And so to the world of the films. The Christopher Reeve series were fun, then ridiculous, then almost unwatchable. They took the core of the character, created a definitive look, but never explored the deeper senses of the origin. They never created a convincing metropolis, and they were hamstrung throughout by the effects available at the time. It also made Superman the man from the early comics the black-and-white good guy who changed in phone boxes and just wanted everyone to be happy. Again, as with everything else, it was Superman, but with a huge hole in it that no one knew how to fill. Not awful, but nowhere near complete in the manner of the Dark Knight films or the like. So after all the misfires, we get to Returns, a film unfairly bashed by some and, for me, slightly difficult to watch. You see, the main problem with it is they chose to follow on from an imperfect world created by imperfect films, with a character who had not been satisfactorily defined and with relationships that felt hollow. It was lazy to not throw away the past and start again. It was lazy to ignore the fact no one had ever got to the root of Superman. And it was lazy to think that this time, getting people to believe a man could fly was easy. What he really needed was a mixed-up relationship with Lois and a love child. It took a flawed world with poorly written backstory, photocopied the main actor into place, then built on the flaws rather than the positives. When I say flaws, I mean things like Lex Luthor being the least frightening bad guy slash master criminal of all time, No real time spent in Superman's past, no sense that he had to make a choice to come and save Lois when there are hundreds of crimes being committed at that very moment he could also be stopping. Again, such potential. No one taking it and crafting something whole, just more bits and pieces and something fundamentally broken before it even began. That's the kick in the balls for a Superman fan. You hang on waiting for someone to capture all of this emotion and depth, and you get maybe 25% of it on a good day. I don't hate Superman Returns as a bad film, I hate it because it represents another missed opportunity. Will the new one be different? I hope so, because if not, in another 50 years' time, everyone will still remember the Red S and Lois Lane and the leaping taller and flying faster, but no one will actually be reading about it. would you have liked to have seen as an alternative to this film? Um, well, one of the things that we've talked about in terms of how the shape of the story could have gone, and it follows on quite neatly from the idea of, uh, of Clark leaving to go back to Krypton 
the whole traveling faster than light thing means that time would pass a lot slower for him than it did for for everybody back on earth so it's not inconceivable that the however long it took him in his perception to get there and back to krypton could have been rather than five years something more in the region of about 18 to 22 years back on earth they could just say something went wrong with a spacecraft and it took him four times as long to get home but we don't have a definitive explanation of how far away Krypton is anyway. About two and a half years at the moment. But the craft he travelled in is not the same one that um, uh, Jarrell sent him in, so there could I have been... I think it is. Okay. Well, <laughs> either way, as you say, anything could have gone wrong with it. Um, this would have resulted in him coming back to find his son, a man... Lois in her late 40s, early 50s, mm. and the circumstances he left behind fundamentally changed. It, yeah, it could be the same world, the it's same just time, been that right? amount of time. Yeah. yeah. So you've then got a situation where he is uh, coming face to face with a boy or a young man whose Kryptonian abilities are far more obvious than Jason's are in the in the film as it stands. Are you thinking Superboy from Young Justice here? I am, yeah. Basically somebody who has a power within him he can't possibly comprehend, a father figure who can't possibly explain it to him in Richard, with a sense of abandonment and desertion that kind of epitomises the angry young man that has, in a way, been done to death. However, it also solves the problem of Superman having to go up against a frankly incompetent villain. The most interesting bad guys, for me, are the, the internal ones. The antagonist that I find more interesting than Bane, frankly, in The Dark Knight Rises, is what Bruce is struggling with internally. Mm. Most of this film, I really do like. There's just this big chunk in the middle end. Basically, the moment Lois steps on the boat. But I mean, pretty much everything else. I, I could do without all the Lex stuff, basically. Everything to do with Lex. But then there's no antagonist. I mean, it's it's $209 million dollars. It's a lot of money. That's a lot of money to pay for a film without any actual antagonist if you didn't have that bit in there. I'm kind of amazed that, uh, considering the, uh, the, the the rocky road to actually getting this film off the ground, that, uh, that Brian Singer even managed to get this done with a minimum of uh, studio meddling. To be fair, that $209 million would then have been minus Kevin Spacey's fee, which was probably substantial. Hmm. Does the 209 include all of the, the rewrites of the script? No, they did actually factor in the 30 extra million on top of that 209 uh, and the 100 million marketing campaign as well. That's why it was considered a box office failure. So even though it made 370 million, they, it would need to have made at least half as much again, if not twice as much, to really be considered a success. You know, I wish they'd start including all of these mysterious advertising fees and additional costs in a film's budget. It would make it so much easier to accept when the studio execs say, we know it made four times what the film's official budget is, but we can still still consider that to be a bit crap. 
it has uh, frustrated the hell out of Brian Singer, who said something like, this made, movie made nearly 400 million. I would like to know how much studio execs consider to be enough. It would appear their final decision was made around about 2008, around about the middle of 2008. I don't know what came out from Warner Brothers then, but uh, certainly it made a billion dollars. That's it. That's all they will be satisfied with from here on in. One billion dollars. Well, Dark Knight Rises also made a billion dollars, so that was good enough. But that's the thing, it raised the bar so much that the 370 million made for Superman Returns, a film which everyone went to see and still came out going, eh, wasn't good enough. So ultimately it makes perfect logical financial sense to go, right, what do people like the Nolan Batmans? Okay, well, we'll make the next Superman like the Nolan Batmans. And good, I'm really glad. I don't think Brian Singer should have got another chance to make another film like this. I think he, we, we got as much as we needed of this particular universe. And I, I'm, I'm happy to say goodbye to this one as it is. And I'm looking forward right now to the Man of Steel and I hope to buggery I'm not disappointed. All depends on the Man of Steel. The TV series, like most of the Superman franchise, fell under the watchful eye of DC Comics editorial director Whitney Ellsworth. Ellsworth crafted a code of conduct for all of DC's heroes, including a ban against killing and excessive violence. It was a move designed to protect DC from further attacks by critics. For the TV series, Ellsworth collaborated with the show's sponsor, Kellogg's, to make sure the program was on budget and patently inoffensive. Get these better-than-ever puffs of wheat. They're sugar-toasted and candy-sweet. Kellogg's were selling cereals for children, so they wanted to keep our show nice. Ellsworth also vetoed the idea of letting Noelle Neal appear in any Kellogg's TV commercials that featured her fellow cast members enjoying a hearty breakfast. And I kept saying, aren't I going to do any? And they said, oh, well, we don't feel that you should be sitting at a breakfast table having cereal with Jimmy Olsen or Clark Kent, because... That's just wrong. Ironically, the idea of Clark and Jimmy waking up to breakfast together didn't seem to raise any eyebrows. Well, good, you're both here. Now, we have an important assignment, and I you can't wait till after breakfast. News can't wait, Kent. You know that. Now then... Not even for new sugar snacks, Chief? No, I say we have this important... Uh, why, yes. joy of Lex. The reason Lex really falls down for me as the villain is that after his initial rant about the pompous, godlike figure flying around in his little red cape, convincing the people of the world they need saving, his ideology becomes non-existent. What motivates Lex? Why does he do the things we see? What does he do when we're not observing him? This goes far beyond the hiring of incompetence. It boils down to why he believes he is the ideal representative of mankind, pitting himself against the Kryptonian. 
But think of all the times they've met in these movies. It's always a trap on Lex's part, twice involving kryptonite, once playing monkey boy for the Kryptonians, and once with his ridiculous nuclear man. Where's the talking? Where's the conflict? Barely a word is spoken between Kal-El and his nemesis. It's obvious Superman disapproves of Lex's evil deeds, but where's the true clash? Which brings me to Nolan's Dark Knight trilogy. This is how you do a true superhero story. In fact, this is how you do a story, period. You set the protagonist and antagonist in opposition, with each of them convinced of their own importance to the grander scheme, determined to play their part for more than simple material gain. Ra's al Ghul, Joker and Bane all have very dark, specific ideas of who people are and what they need. Batman has to stand against them, and gets at least two really great moments of ideological conflict close up and in person. In the case of the Joker, the situation becomes more dire the more Batman beats on his enemy. His strength is for nothing against a man of such inhuman determination who laughs at every punch. What does Lex want? Land? His plan is to kill billions and hinges upon a fever dream of untouchability because they have a couple of crystals? which grow bigger in water? He mentions that they will have Kryptonian weapons, but aside from that throwaway sentence, he has no leverage against the obvious and unavoidable non-Kryptonian reprisal. And when this land turns out to be a charcoal ruin, when he and his gang are left playing cards and waiting for the Benjamins to come rolling in, when every child could tell you that the most likely response is going to be a SEAL team and lifelong incarceration in a federal prison, how does that change Lex? How does he react to failure? He doesn't. He's just smoking a cigar and waiting. Superman trashes his pad and he retreats in a helicopter to a small island where he will no doubt murder and eat Kitty. The whole thing was just a trap. An enormous, hey, look at me, to get Superman's attention. The dog whistle coupled with the missile in San Andreas. Then to punk him with kryptonite and then to try and drown him. Exactly the same as the first cretinous scheme. This time it's a way of working in a Kryptonian version of the Passion, as Kal-El is beaten, kicked and degraded, laid low and finally stabbed in the side. It's no secret that Superman has been positioned as Jesus in the past, but in doing this, Singer ham-fistedly paints a wafer-thin character, Lex that is, with blind, ill-considered, self-destructive hate for an exceptional man who stops people being killed in plane crashes. Aspects of this actually remind me most of a far more complex and multi-layered villain, Cartman in South Park, obsessed with ridiculing and tormenting Kyle Broflowski. Look at how much effort goes into each one of Cartman's schemes. It seems like all he really wants is Kyle's respect, but knowing deep down that he doesn't deserve it, Eric would rather have the boy's hatred. But Kyle is too much of a good person to harbour these negative feelings, which Cartman is so familiar with. So ultimately, Lex and Cartman's plans are doomed. What about me, they ask? Am I not exceptional? Why won't you notice me like I notice you? Why are you such a goddamn nice guy? They are kryptonite green with envy for the forthright worldview of their self-appointed foe. And of course, if both of them turned their efforts to helping people rather than hurting them, their question would be inadvertently answered. Until on-screen Lex develops his own philosophy as to why the world is better off without Superman, one that can stand up to fierce argument, he will remain a moustache-twirling, high-chair tyrant with his booby traps, his bungled plans, and his ever-suffering floozies. 
Simply put, Superman deserves better. You know who doesn't think it's a waste of money? Little Mr. Captain Amazing. Well, Captain, um, if we had a billionaire like Lance Hunt as our benefactor, yeah, we could spend a hundred million. That's because Lance Hunt is Captain Amazing. Oh, don't uh, start that again. Lance Hunt wears glasses. Captain Amazing doesn't wear glasses. He takes them off and he transforms. That doesn't make any sense. He wouldn't be able to see. Lois's Pain by Alex Shaw. Lois is at her most real and her most complex in this depiction. In consequence, she's hard to recognise. The character as written and performed in previous incarnations is brassy to the point of obnoxious, can't spell despite being a journalist for a major metropolitan newspaper, and is oblivious as to Clark Kent's secret identity. It's debatable as to whether Lois is now unconsciously aware of her co-worker's dual persona. She reacts with Clark aggressively, getting what needs to be said out, and all of her girlish petty anger spouted with vehemence. If she does know on some level, then he can't have burned that aspect out of her brain entirely. Bear in mind Clark's disappearance at the same time five years ago is something of a clue. But on the roof, her reactions are as honest as they come. How could you leave us? Of course meaning the world, but clearly herself and their child. This paints a picture of a woman who held out hope for a while that the father of her increasingly Kryptonian in origin baby would come back and form a family unit. Until the day she decided she, and by extension the world, did not need him. This was a life-changing moment, and while her resolve is put to the test in this film, her eventual decision is to stay with Richard rather than pursue her crush, a man she clearly does not know. Lois is unfortunately party to the worst portion of this film. The events that take place on the boat are uncomfortably mismatched with the rest. You get prolonged exposure to an occasionally bellowing Lex, clearly a deeply angry and aggressive homicidal maniac, but you also get a sudden, unexpectedly disturbing moment with a henchman. Lois is smart and resourceful, sending the overheard coordinates in a fax to the Daily Planet. In response, the tattooed, mute and threatening man who had been playing piano with her tiny, delicate son launches himself at her, smashing her head off a globe, and as she scurries away, lightly fingering a letter opener and sharp-looking geode with which to murder her messily and painfully in front of a now horrified audience of families. He gets a cartoonish death with a piano, and we all realise who Jason's father is, but watching it more than once, in possession of this knowledge already, is a grim, tension-free experience of wondering how the fuck Brian Singer thought this was acceptable. Lois should have been the one searching for improvised weapons. Might I suggest a pen? If you want the piano moment, then make the henchman equally cartoonish, not something out of Red Dragon. The boat also comes equipped with Kitty... Parker Posey is an accomplished comedy actress capable of playing a supremely bitchy neurotic with masterful ease. So why resurrect Miss Tesmacher? Why decline to tweak her character even one little bit in the interim 28 years from the pantomime floozy? What is Kitty even there for? Weak, mismatched gags about fluffy cannibalistic dogs? To lose her shit in an out-of-control car sequence, allowing them to pay homage to the front cover of Action Comics number one, and ultimately to have the same change of heart and dump those useless crystals? On the subject of crystals, if the Fortress of Solitude came from a single shard and forged itself into a pre-programmed shape, how and why could other crystals plucked from its memory stick collection explode into random dead landmass? How and why would the green kryptonite do the same, expanding, replicating and corrupting when we've already seen in the first movie that that's not what happens to it underwater? 
the only internal logic is based on a single literal throwaway moment in a movie which we've already seen didn't have too much thought ploughed into making sense. Fortunately, pretty much everything else in this film makes sense and is well shot, charmingly acted and sensitively delivered. The plane rescue in particular is a standout set piece worthy of note among the greatest feats of cinematic superheroism. The finale is even a potted version of the death and resurrection of Superman, something it seems like the producers needed assurance would be in this film. The bit where the medical equipment fails to resuscitate him or even break his skin, while a worried world stands outside the hospital and waits, is particularly accomplished. We could easily have done with 20 more minutes of what Superman means to the people, and 40 minutes less of harebrained schemes and ugly rocks. Superman bathed in the glow of our yellow sun, accompanied by John Ottman's wonderful reworking of John Williams' flying theme, is the absolute pinnacle. A wounded champion made strong by the giver of all life. His subsequent cruciform fall to earth afterwards may be overemphasising the point, but there are plenty of people ready to be inspired by someone so selfless, ready to ask themselves, what would Kal-El do? It's certainly easy to understand why Lois realises that both she and the world really do need Superman. Superman's Return Most of the best single stories about him deal with the concept of Superman. Red Sun, All-Star, Earth One, Kingdom Come, and Whatever Happened to the Man of Tomorrow are all Elseworlds books that aren't constrained by continuity or sustaining the story over time and future authors. In 1996, John Byrne rebooted the series post-crisis with a six-issue miniseries named The Man of Steel. Byrne kept a remarkable amount of the hallmarks of the series intact, refocusing the story and characters to give us what became the Superman outside the movies for everyone else. The basis for his animated counterparts and the boost the series needed to keep going when the world of the 1980s was going crazy for Marvel's mutants, Spider-Man and Batman. Since then, many writers have gone back to pre-crisis Silver Age sensibilities in an effort to recapture what made the character great. It's gone back and forth, and even today, the different books follow different times in the current rebooted New 52 hero's life. It was this maturing over the decades-long interim between the fourth and fifth film that Superman Returns drew from, partially, but only in little sips. 
Make no mistake, despite the bald Lex and the renewed interest in the power of Earth's yellow sun, this was the Donner Superman. From that intro sequence with the John Williams score and the zooming blue letters as we hurtle through space, it's abundantly clear that Singer had a vision, and that was to make a film for his generation, who had grown up watching the Reeve movies, and wanted something more mature, but set in the same world. What we ended up with was a relationship drama with heavy lifting. Brandon Routh's Superman is so rooted in the Christopher Reeve characterization that he had to wear blue contact lenses and ape the performance of his predecessor. The effect was quite eerie, especially since Reeve had died only two years prior. I remember it bringing a tear to my eye when he told the passengers that flying was statistically still the safest way to travel. Amazingly, if you watch him like a hawk, Ralph does get in plenty of his own performance, but it's found in his silent dealings with the more complex issues that are presented here. He is, in a word, quite beautiful at times, hanging in the air, calm and assured, but alone, and while not riven with self-pity, acutely aware of his daily sacrifice. It's odd seeing him play Clark, because he's playing Reeve, playing Kal-El, playing Clark, only not clumsy and awkward. As a result, the startling difference between his pretend human and his godlike Kryptonian is nowhere near as pronounced. And that's a good thing. Clark shouldn't bumble any more than Lex should in this age. Metropolis, in contrast, is a changed place, filled with positive, kind people. Everyone is quiet and grateful that he's returned. This was only five years after 9-11, and while heavy-handed references to that horrible day were taken out of early scripts... It's clear the filmmakers did not believe the world was ready to be seen as anything other than hopeful and supportive of their heroes. Nobody is demanding and selfish, nobody but Lex and the bank robbers. It's almost utopian. This is in contrast to Raimi's Spider-Man, which was filled with quirky, mouthy New Yorkers and frequent ill-feeling for the well-meaning web-slinger. It doesn't feel real, but most comic book cities never do anyway. The best I've seen so far is actually Hancock. The biggest change is Jason Lane. If you've seen the Justice League episode for The Man Who Has Everything, or read the Alan Moore Superman annual it's an adaptation of, and I recommend that you do, by the way, you'll be familiar with Kal-El's darkest, most secret wish. He wants to be a normal guy, with a loving wife and a son, who he can help grow into a man. He wants to be just like us. That's why he spies on Lois and finds himself hovering outside her house, watching the life of a suburban family. He covets what he can never have, that responsibility only to your nearest and dearest and not to the seven billion other people all crying out for help. These are his moments of weakness, that human frailty and flaws that make for better characterization. He's Woody. Richard is Buzz Lightyear. Andy, or Lois, is there for the taking, obvious to his super-perception to be quivering, conflicted, and deeply affected by his return. He shows off by flying her around like he used to. On finding at the close that Jason is his, he backs off. This is enough of an unexpected, joyful, life-changing occurrence that he is sated Finding solace in the fact that Lois is happy and that she will most likely marry and conduct a semi-normal life with a good man he now trusts to help raise the new lost son of Krypton. Superman is married to the world. We are a demanding partner and don't give anywhere near back what we take from him. 
but he would never quit on us again, and now he has a successor, which is more than either of us could have asked. This closes the loop. The son becomes the father, and we say goodbye to this Superman. It will be different. Sometimes you will feel like an outcast, but you'll never be alone. You will make my strength your own. You will see my life through your eyes as your life will be seen through mine. Son becomes the father, and the father becomes the son. not meet him again. So long.
Me. Mm-hmm.